0: Don't you wish your life came with a warning app? That dog does not want to be petted. <laughs> well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but pre-diabetes does. Take the one-minute test today at doihadprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners.
1: So what was the commercial real estate market sort of steady eddy is now the thing that is front of mind for most people in terms of where they think damage is going to come down.
2: Welcome to the Best New Ideas in Money, a podcast for MarketWatch. I'm Stephanie Kelton. I'm an economist and a professor of economics and
3: public policy at Stony Brook University. And I'm Charles Passy, a reporter at MarketWatch.
2: Each week, we explore innovations in economics, finance, technology, and policy that rethink the way we live, work, spend, save, and invest.
3: Stephanie, today we're talking about the office, about cities, and about the ripple effects a broad shift to hybrid and remote work could have on the economy. But first, did you ever think that the contemporary office, the office as we have known it for generations, might become a thing of the past?
2: Well, not the way we're thinking about it now. I mean, there were times before COVID that people were reimagining the workplace, imagining a shorter work week. We've talked about some of these things on the show before, but the things that we're wrestling with now, the idea of some people just permanently working from home and of businesses embracing some version of that model, no, I didn't think I would probably ever be in an environment where that was the new normal. What about you, Charles? Did you think any of this would ever happen?
3: No. I mean, you know, I'm of the world that thought this is the way work works, that you go to an office five days a week. You know, you get some vacation, you get some sick days and things like that. But generally, you're in a physical workplace that is not your home. And, you know, while I'm still not sure how long all this may last, there is really a lot of evidence out there that indicates this shift may become permanent.
2: What that means for offices remains to be seen, but things aren't looking rosy. For example, a recent report from Cushman and Wakefield, a commercial real estate firm, called more than a quarter of office space in the United States obsolete.
3: And that's not all. According to the same report, by the end of the decade, there could be as much as get this 1.1 billion square feet of vacant office space in the United States. That's an area about the same size as Disney World a magic kingdom of empty cubicles. For the latest on remote work and where all this is going, we talked to Nick Bloom, a professor of economics at Stanford University.
2: Bloom began studying remote and hybrid work years before the COVID-19 pandemic. We asked him how many Americans could potentially work remotely
0: today. The best numbers on how many Americans can work remotely is how many Americans did work remotely in April, May 2020. Because back in April, May 2020, anyone that could do their job even badly from home was doing it from home because of the total lockdown. And that number is about 60 percent.
2: Back in April and May of 2020, the civilian labor force was approximately 160 million, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Today it's closer to 165 million. Either way, 60 percent of this labor force is about 100 million Americans.
3: Of course, 100 million Americans are not working remotely today. So between hybrid and remote work, where are all those
0: numbers settling? So in 2023, we have very good numbers for where things will shake out. 60 million Americans, about 40% of the workforce, are going to be working at least one day a week at home.
2: Which direction is this trend moving? Bloom believes that the amount of remote work that we're seeing today is just the beginning. With that said, not everybody is as bullish on remote work as Bloom. But when we get lost in the the will-they-or-won't-they-go-back-to-the-office conversations, we lose sight of a bigger question. What happens
3: to the office if people really do stop going? You mean that magic kingdom of empty cubicles?
2: Exactly. Let's start with commercial real estate. What's the connection between remote work and commercial real estate? The connection
1: is that it's kind of the biggest question for commercial real estate right now.
3: That's my colleague, Joy Wiltermuth, an editor and senior reporter at MarketWatch.
1: Open a newspaper, open a browser. You can't not see stories about commercial real estate right now and the worries that investors have, lenders have about the sector in the future with a huge focus on office. So This is the biggest question that people have about the future of real estate and office is, are we going to go back to five days a week? Is that not a possibility? And if it's not a possibility, we don't have those answers. How do you make a new loan on these properties?
2: Wiltermouth is pointing to property loads, or in this case, the money that's tied up in the offices that many of us work in, or worked in. Recent data from the National Association of Real Estate Investment Trusts indicates that the size of the commercial real estate market in the United States is about $21 trillion. But that massive number includes everything from offices to retail to hospitality and healthcare. U.S. offices alone are about a $3 trillion market.
3: Let's put that in context. $3 trillion is about the GDP of France. But before the COVID-19 pandemic, some investors considered office towers one of the safest places that you could invest your money. Here's Wiltermith.
1: If we're talking about office buildings specifically, you know, they were the golden child of commercial real estate for a very long time. This was the kind of asset that foreign governments wanted to have a slice of, whether it was bonds or even an equity stake in trophy buildings. This was the safe haven. Hey, I own a part of this building or I own the entire building on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan, right? Well, remote work changed that completely where you're just seeing a flight to sort of the higher end office buildings with the new amenities and the rest, the bulk of the American office housing stock is old, sort of 1950s, 1960s, and not as attractive for the new tenants. And we're sort of left with thinking, well, what's next? So what was the commercial real estate market sort of steady eddy for at least a decade? is now the thing that is a front of mind for most people in terms of where they think damage is going to come down
3: so stephanie we're talking about a major market that's worth around three trillion dollars where is all that money
2: Well, it's all over the place. A lot of banks and other investors have financed commercial real estate loans, so the question a lot of people are asking is, what happens if businesses don't want to renew the leases? What if they just want to walk away from the buildings?
3: Um, Okay, so it's not time to worry, or is it?
2: Well, it depends who you ask. There are people out there right now who are actually getting increasingly concerned, and then there are other people who are saying, you know, aside from a few specific parts of the country, there's not a lot to worry about. But let's go back to Wiltermouth.
1: You should be aware that there's probably going to be more stress and we're going to see prices of buildings fall, which means somebody takes a hit, a financial hit. Because if it was a $100 million loan that was due whether that was split up into bonds or held at a bank. If they're not getting paid, somebody is taking the financial hurt. So there will be most likely more financial hurt if we see property prices start to fall. The question is, how far do they fall?
3: Well, that's a cliffhanger. When we're back, we're going to look at what happens to the economy and especially to cities when employees stop going to the office. Stay with us.
0: Don't you wish your life came with a warning app? That dog does not want to be petted. <laughs> well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but prediabetes does. Take the one-minute test today at prediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes Awareness Partners.
2: Welcome back to The Best New Ideas in Money. Before the break, we talked about remote work and what remote work could mean for commercial real estate and for the economy more broadly.
3: Newton's third law of motion is that every action has an equal and opposite reaction. And if the action in this case is more Americans working from home, well, the equal and opposite reaction is what's happening in the commercial real estate market. So what is happening in the commercial real estate market? Here's my colleague, Joy Wiltermuth.
1: Well, it doesn't give a lot of confidence that some of the biggest asset managers in this country, big-name companies that have billions in assets or even more, are handing back the keys. That's
2: just happening now. When Wilterman says handing back the keys, she means defaulting on payments. That is, handing the keys over to the lender or the bank that made the loan.
3: In recent months, we've seen a number of high-profile defaults from big names in commercial real estate, including Brookfield Asset Management, Columbia Property Trust, and Vornado. And while these companies may not be household names, their sizable real estate portfolios include office towers that are the office for thousands of workers.
2: But a shift to remote work isn't the only factor exerting pressure on the sector. So the global financial crisis, Federal
1: Reserve slash rates to almost nothing. And then as they bumped back up a bit, COVID happened, they slashed them again. So what we have is more than a decade of ultra low interest rates, even for commercial property owners. They're not paying zero. They're paying, they had been paying like 3% coupon, which is pretty low, you know, in the history of even a hundred years of buildings. That's really low.
3: coupon is a little different than an interest rate. What Wiltermith is saying here is basically that commercial property owners had been enjoying really low interest rates. In other words, they had a good deal, but not anymore. What they also
1: did, because rates were low, everything was looking fine, a lot of those real estate owners pulled out equity in the buildings. Now, we're in a higher rate regime, those 10-year mortgages or seven-year mortgages are coming due, you're not gonna get a 3% coupon and property values
2: are under pressure. When she says coming due, Wiltermouth means that the debt is maturing and borrowers will need to refinance at today's higher interest rates. Put another way, these buildings just got a lot more expensive. And she isn't alone in this assessment. Here's Nick Bloom, who we heard from at the beginning of the
0: episode. The future for commercial real estate is not great. So let's break it down into thinking about class A, what are called trophy offices. Fantastic office buildings are just treading water. The reason is a lot of big companies are doing hybrid. They want somewhere nice for folks to come in two, three days a week. They tend to focus on high quality offices in city centers. So it's not a great market to be in, but it's not terrible. Where things are looking incredibly painful is slightly less, you know, nice offices that still have these massive footprints so can't easily be converted to residential and city centre. So think of an office built in the 80s or 90s. It's a massive footprint, which makes, you know, no one wants to live in an apartment where there are no windows. Some of these offices are going to be converted. The smaller ones, which are kind of small footprints, which have enough windows, enough bathrooms can be converted. Bigger ones are going to remain vacant.
2: Converting office space to residential seems like a no-brainer, but it isn't easy. Wiltermouth recently wrote about the complexities of converting offices to housing for MarketWatch, and developers say that while this will happen because the value of older office buildings could dip as much as 70%, it won't happen quickly and could take decades.
3: 70%?
2: As much as 70%. There's also a lot of concern around the amount of commercial real estate debt held by smaller and regional banks, which have already been rattled by the failures of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, and more recently, First Republic.
3: Although we can't be sure how turmoil in commercial real estate will impact the economy, we do know that the decline of the office is having a definite impact on big cities. Why? Taxes levied on commercial real estate are a key element of city budgets, often contributing as much as 30% and sometimes more of the revenue cities use to fund things like schools, public safety, parks, sanitation, and more. And it isn't just the taxes on the buildings themselves that fill up city budgets. Here's Bloom.
0: The other thing that's got less press actually is some of the retail space in city centers. That's also in trouble because if office workers used to come in five days a week and are now coming in two, three days a week, they're spending a lot less you know, cash, a lot fewer dollars around work. In fact, we estimate for Manhattan, we're seeing a drop of about 10 to 12 billion dollars a year of less retail expenditure. And that's driving down the values of the types of things that stores, Starbucks, Macy's, these kind of things in downtowns are also suffering. And if they can't sell as much, the leases are worth less as well. What's more,
3: this is made worse by who is doing the remote working. Bloom has found that it is typically the highest earners, those who spend the most in cities who are doing the most remote work.
2: While Bloom's estimates for New York City are concerning, one of the cities where the shift to remote work is the most dramatic and appears to be increasingly durable is San Francisco, where office vacancy rates recently rose to a record 29%. Here's Wiltermuth.
1: Well, on a very dour note, I did grow up in the Midwest, a small town, (laughs) and I'm a relative newcomer to San Francisco. But what I do worry about is that without some answers, you could end up potentially seeing a
2: Detroit kind of scenario.
3: And what does that mean exactly?
2: Well, if the story of Detroit is in part what happens to a city when the city's major industry leaves town, the comparison to San Francisco becomes clear. What happens to San Francisco if tech leaves San Francisco? And more broadly, what happens to cities if major employers depart?
1: Without action, what's to prevent Detroit from repeating itself in other big cities and people just left behind? That's my biggest worry. I have tried to have this conversation with some people in San Francisco, and they say, no way, that's that's you know crazy talk. And it could be, but I'm just from the Midwest, and It's not that it can happen. It has happened in history of cities in the United States when it was once unimaginable. So I think there should be a call to action.
3: Nick Bloom co-authored a recent paper on what's happening in San Francisco and elsewhere. He calls the recent hollowing out of city centers and the growth of the suburbs, the donut effect.
0: The donut effect is something we coined to talk about US cities using data from MasterCard. So at its simplest, what's happening is, think of an American donut, empty in the middle, it's fat around the edges. So folks, like probably many people listening now, are uh, graduates, you know, professionals, managers are saying, you know what, I only need to be in the office now two, three days a week. I want a bit more space, I want a home office, I'm going to move out to the suburbs. And a lot of people are moving out to the suburbs, about a million Americans across big cities, and that is creating a donut. It's emptying out the center and pushing up the suburbs.
2: What can cities do about it? There are no easy answers. For example, a recent city government report suggested San Francisco convert vacant office space to housing and seek to diversify its economy so it's less dependent on the ups and downs of the tech industry.
3: Interesting ideas, but not things that happen at the push of a button. Back to Bloom.
0: The group that I think are most negatively hit by the surge in work from home, and you know, what is a permanent change, is city centers, you know, the government's running that, the mayors, etc. So if you think of London Breed in San Francisco, Eric Adams in New York, their life has become a lot harder.
3: San Francisco is facing a nearly $780 million shortfall over the next two fiscal years. Chicago, America's third largest city, is also projecting a deficit in the hundreds of millions over the next few years. And New York City? Estimates vary, but the city could be short between 11 billion to 14 billion dollars by 2027. Meanwhile, according to card swipe data from Castle Systems, office occupancy nationally is sitting at just under 50% of pre-pandemic levels. On the other hand, Joy Wiltermith points to the recovery of Lower Manhattan after 9-11 as an example of how things can turn around. In her view, in addition to a strategic approach and some good fortune, the city she's keeping an eye on, San Francisco, needs a champion.
1: I'm waiting to see sort of like what Robert De Niro did downtown in New York um, with bringing the film festival to Tribeca, you know, after September 11th. I'm just kind of waiting to see who is that group or that face or that name that says, I am committed no matter what come what may, we're here, we're gonna be here, we're gonna look different, it's gonna be a tough time, we're getting through it. I think San Francisco needs
2: that. Beyond San Francisco, what could these shifts in where and how we work mean for the future of cities? Bloom argues they'll rebound and
0: change. The future of cities is, is still pretty strong. So there's no way that big cities are going away. But there's a little bit less time spent working in them and a little bit more time spent going out, socializing. So cities of the future are going to be somewhat cheaper. It is not like cities are going back to the 1980s. The city centers are scary. It is like they've got a bit cheaper, maybe back to 2010. What will that do? I think it will make the center of cities, the folks living there, they'll be a bit younger, a bit more diverse, you know, a bit more hip less, you know, basically people in their 40s and 50s, are more younger folks that want to have lively bars and restaurants nearby. I also like being, you know, nearish work, but they're going in three days a week, so that's less critical to them.
3: And what about this question of, well, if there's a recession, could that result in a sharp drop in the amount of hybrid and remote work we're seeing today? Meaning, if workers feel their jobs are in jeopardy, they might be inclined to show up at the office five days a week. Back to Wiltermith.
1: I just talked to a real estate restructuring professional this morning, and he was saying, if there's a recession, it doesn't matter, you're gonna have to head back to the office. I think that is also still an open question because, yes, face time in the office, showing you're committed to your job is, physically, that's what you can do. And the other side of things, when you think about where can I cost save in a recession, as the big executive of a company. Well, we have shown that through the pandemic, remote work works. If you aren't having full staff in the office five days a week, there's flexibility in terms of how much space you need.
2: Thanks for listening to the Best New Ideas in Money. You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you heard, please leave us a rating or review. And if you have ideas for future episodes, drop us a line at at marketwatch.com. Thanks to Nick Bloom and Joy Wilterman. To learn more about remote work, commercial real estate, and the future of cities, head to marketwatch.com. I'm Stephanie Kelton.
3: And I'm Charles Passy. The best new ideas in money is a podcast from MarketWatch. The producers are Michael McDowell, Meta Lutzhoff, and Katie Ferguson. Michael McDowell mixed this episode. Melissa Haggerty is the executive producer. Mark DiCambri was our newsroom editor on this episode. The best new ideas in money theme was composed by Sam Retzer. Stephanie Kelton is an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University, and not part of the MarketWatch newsroom. We'll be back next week with another new idea.